We live in a world that supports and promotes instant gratification. It's fast, it's on the move, it's in real time. Some call it the uh, quote unquote millennial mindset, but this overwhelming pace and state of mind has crept into the psyche of many. Truth is, the journey to greatness, however you define that, takes time and has a cost. Costs are not always a negative, but they are very real and sometimes expensive. Here is where we have those transparent conversations and learn how men and women across various fields and backgrounds are making that cost pay off. Welcome to The Cost with Dana Blair. Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of The Cost. I'm Dana Blair. I thank you for taking the time to click that listen button and hope that you share with your search social circles, as I can't speak, as well as give us a click on that subscribe or follow button. The cost is a very special place and a space to have a different, honest conversation, and hopefully you'll take away some gems that will help you move forward and dominate your dreams and aggressively pursue your passions. Joining me today, I have a very special guest. Many of you first met her on Bravo's Blood, Sweat, and Heels, or even her blog, A Bell in Brooklyn, or perhaps one of her best-selling books, but I met her not to date myself, about 10 years ago in the Halls of Essence magazine. She was a relationships editor. I was a brand spanking new marketing manager. I was lost. I was just trying to find a good coffee machine, and I saw this fierce woman in the hallway, and I was like, I got it. I have to know her. Um, she is an award-winning author, journalist, media personality, Miss Demetria Lucas. How are you? I'm awesome. Hey, babe. Hey. Hey, babe. Hey. That was like a mouthful, but I felt like I had to give you all of that because you're worth I all love of that. that. That was such a yeah. great intro. I was like, I need to, like, pay you to, like, introduce me everywhere. That was great. Please do. I'm working on my, um, my pitch and my range. So <laughs> give me a month or two. I got you, boo. I got you. <laughs> I love it. I'm curious. Did you always want to be a writer? Yes. I, I, that's the only thing I've known for sure in my entire life. Um, I read – waiting to exhale at a completely inappropriate age. I want to say like I was like 10, 11, something like that. My mom mm-hmm. had left it laying around. It was a rainy afternoon in the suburbs. And I just picked up the book and started reading. And I laid on the couch all day and read it cover to cover. And when I was finished, I was like, I think I want to be a writer. Like just like that. I just, I just knew. And it was mm-hmm. something that I didn't have to I mean, I had to think about it, and I had to try hard, but it's not something that's difficult for me. Like, you know, some people are really good with numbers, and some people are, are just really good with, like, I don't know, other things. very naturally to me. It was just a, a trait that I had to, like, you know, hone, but not something that's a challenge for me, per se. Mm-hmm. And so when, at what point did you tell your mama that you read her Waiting to Exhale and that you now wanted to be a writer? <laughs> so my parents are really weird. Like, they're very concerned conservative people overall like my dad is like an old black man from the country of Mississippi like ex-army like oh he's not so mad it's ex-air force so he's like Mm -hmm. like a military guy like very strict and my mom is like a preacher's kid from Detroit and on most things they're very very like conservative very very strict my mother was like yeah I saw you reading the book and I was like you thought it was appropriate to let a 10 year old read waiting to exhale and she was like no (laughs) But you were reading. Like, I'm going to stop you from reading. She was like, you were quiet. You were on the couch. You weren't in my way. And you were reading. Like, who tells a kid not to read? So, you know, if you had questions, you knew to ask me about whatever. And I was like, did I ask you anything? And she was like, no, most of that book went over your head. You didn't know what you were reading. I was like, um, (laughs) 
You're right, because I read it again recently, and I was like, what? how did you let me read this? And how did I not pick up on this? Because I was 10. I had no concept of relationships or sex. Right, you didn't know anything. Yeah. You know, I when Pretty Woman came out, and of course Julia Roberts like captivated everyone, and like Richard Gere, and I remember after seeing that movie again, don't know how my mama let me watch that movie. I remember telling my mom, "Mom, I want to be a prostitute." What? And she's like, "Um, we're gonna." She's like, "Hold on." We need to talk about this. We need to talk about this. Well, I, all I knew is Julia Roberts wore a red dress and was on the plane and had the necklace and went to the opera. Look good to me. Well, you know, from I, again. perspective, I, mm-hmm. I, I get it. You're like, you don't know with that, you know. I get it. You don't know. You don't know. So, Demetra, what made you want to choose relationships as your forte in writing? Um, so that's, like, such a, a tricky thing. Like, when I knew I wanted to be a writer, I just wanted to tell good stories. Like, for Waiting to Exhale, everyone and their mother literally was reading that book. Because I'd go to the salon with my mother, and everyone would be talking about it. And they'd you know, well, she did this, and then she said that. And it was people were analyzing this book like it was somebody's real life. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like, my mom's friends would come over, and whatever they would talk about, it, inevitably it would turn back to this book. So I wanted to write things that were engaging and got people talking. And I started in entertainment. Like, my, my first internship was at Vibe. I, I was writing about, you know, R&B and, and hip-hop. That was, like, mm-hmm. all I was really into at the time. I was in my early 20s. Um, and, you know, I wrote for Vibe, and I wrote for The Source and XXL. And there was this great magazine called The Ab, and they started giving me cover stories. And I was, like, the jailhouse interview. So you were going in, and you, or you were coming right out. Like, they would mm-hmm. send me to talk to them. So, like, Beanie Siegel on his way to jail, like, I was one of, like, the last big interviews. And... When he came out for, like, busting somebody in the eye and breaking their eye socket, like, I was the first interview, like, went up to the trap house in in the Bronx at, like, midnight or 1 a.m. and interviewed him and, you know, weed smoke and whatever. Like, that was was what I did starting out. Um, Wait, you just totally blew my mind with that. Most people are like, wait, what? Demetria, what? Yeah, that's how I got started. You just totally blew my mind. So how do you transition from that, which is like very much like a a boys club? That's a boys club, you know, whether people want to admit it or not, you know, and especially your petite, attractive young lady. I'm sure, you know, you had to probably curse somebody out more than once. How do you go from that to an all-women's title in relationships? So working with the guys, um, never really was that big an issue. Like the editors sometimes would be a little skeevy, but never interviewed a rapper no matter how hardcore that was anything less than a gentleman. Beanie Siegel, mm-hmm. ultimate gentleman. Styles P, fresh out the pen, ultimate gentleman. Like three in the morning, two in the morning at the trap house. Like gentleman. Like walking downstairs to my car. Like just nice guy. Want to make sure nothing happened to me. Um, and I was there by myself, no security, no editors, like no assistance, like nothing. Um, and I was fine. Um, so that was writing for hip hop magazines was my side hustle. I had a nine to five. My first real job in New York was editing romance novels for BET. Mm-hmm. And I did that for a couple of years. And then I was like, you know, I kind of like this romance novel thing. And if I'm going to do it, I should, you know, go to the biggest house. So I transitioned to become an editor at Harlequin, 
And I mm-hmm. edited, like, the really nasty, filthy stuff. It was, like, the best job ever. I just read about, like, sex and <laughs> dating all that. Um, but Harlequin was very much, like, they're the leader in, in romance novels, and they operated very much like a machine. So, like, if any study comes out, if any book comes out, if any movie comes out, anything that has to do with dating and relationships, they call all the editors into the room and they divvy us up and, you know, someone's got to read this and someone's got to go see that and someone's got to analyze whatever and we have to write reports and then come back and talk about them with the rest of the group. So Mm -hmm. in the office, I was one of two black people. I was the youngest person by far. I was the only person that lived in Brooklyn. Um, It was mostly middle-aged white women. A lot of their husbands worked on Wall Street, so this was like the hobby job for them, like something to do to keep themselves entertained. I was like, no, I have to be good at this because this is how I pay my bills. But we have all these discussions about dating and relationships, and I couldn't relate to them, and they couldn't relate to me. But I had like all these statistics and all these studies and all this information that I didn't know what to do with. And I would talk about it with my friends, like, incessantly, and I was like, oh, my God, someone should be writing about this. And they were like, well, you're the writer, so why don't you just write? And that's kind of mm-hmm. how, like, A Bell in Brooklyn was born. Like, I pitched a lot of stuff to, to different magazines and say, hey, I want to write about this, and it's sex and dating and relationships. And they were like, no, because, you know, like, you're like the music girl. Like, you write about, like, you know, the guys who are going to jail or coming out. Like, you know, do you want to write this review real quick of this? hardcore hip-hop album, and I'm like, no, I want to do something different, but people couldn't Mm -hmm. see me in that lane, so I started a blog, um, A Bell in Brooklyn, and it took off, like, immediately, and from the time I started to six months later, I was sitting at a desk at Essence as a relationship editor. I love the fact that you didn't let somebody else or outside voices tell you what the lane you should stay in. I absolutely, absolutely love that. I think that's so important. I think that's something that a lot of us struggle with. Sometimes we become good at one thing or we, we're seen as one thing and we la- allow others' um, voices and input to pigeonhole us into, like, one particular lane or genre. Yeah. Well, for me, it was – I was – I guess I was, like, 27, 28 when I started my blog, and I couldn't see myself, like, just, like, long-time vision. I was like, you know, like, what am I going to do? What is going to be my thing that sustains me? And I was kind of aging out of, like, the hardcore hip-hop, and the music was changing. Like, I could write forever about, you know, like a, like a Wu-Tang album or Method Man or Red Man or Nas or something like that. But there was only but so much words I had for, like, Soldier Boy. You know? Right. So right. I was like, True. I can't write passionately and in depth about this. Like I, I don't really have a desire to get inside the minds of of the new crop of, of rappers that are coming up. And it's not that they were bad, they were just very different from what I was used to. You know, every every person has, you know, their lane and their genre, but I just wasn't as passionate about it. And it's one of those jobs that takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, if you've ever had to transcribe a tape, like, you know, you got to sit there for two or three hours and, you know, go over and type up and rewind. And, you know, if you're going to put that kind of investment, it needs to be something you're really interested in. And I just didn't have the same passion for it. So I was thinking, like, you know, I was at Harlequin and I was doing all this relationship stuff, but I really did actually think that, like, you know, there's longevity in talking about dating and relationships and it's something that I'm really passionate about and it's something that people want to read about and it's something that you know people are always going to have issues with so if you can you know analyze the trends or I wasn't even thinking about offering advice at the time but if you can you know just keep up with like what people are talking about like give voice to the concerns like all the things that you wish people would say and no one's saying you know actually say it be that voice it's, it's missing in the landscape 
Oh, it works. Dropping gems. I'm taking notes over here from my own life, trying to get myself together. <laughs> Let me write that down. So, and how long were you at Essence? I was there from 2007 to 2011, so four years. And you did a lot in those four years, one of which was your first book came out, correct? Mm-hmm. My first book came out in June 2011. And I and left in a- November, October, something like that. And you had a lot of success. You grew your name. You were growing your brand. You were a presence in the magazine. You know, people were wanting to speak with you, you know. And, it's, and the brand itself is a brand that culturally means a lot to our people. What made you want to leave? What made you say, you know what, I think my time here is done? So I, I never wanted to leave. Like it was one of those decisions where you're like at a fork in the road and you're like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Um, while I was at Essence, I had continued to, to do my blog. And so my blog was huge, like crazy numbers for the time, which I didn't even know to check because I was never in it for like, oh, I'm going to be a blogger. Like I was mm-hmm. a writer who happened to have a blog. So the, the numbers were crazy. I get this book deal. I also have this column in Essence every month. And then, I've, you know, I've got the relationship section, which is like booming from that like sweet spot of 24 to 35. You know, I, I'm interviewing half-naked men and doing these roundtables with guys about, you know, asking them any and everything. I've got all these celebrities in the magazine, like these gorgeous men. Like it was the dream job. Like I, I couldn't have. I mean, I guess I did dream it up. I kind of, you know, contoured it to what I wanted it to be. But, like, it's just the most far-fetched things that I wanted to do. Um, my editor-in-chief at the time was like, okay, Demetria, it's crazy, but, you know, it seems to be working. So, so yeah. I'm like, really? You mm-hmm. said yes to that? Like, <laughs> be that job. I love that job. Um, but A Bell in Brooklyn came out, and it was like a whirlwind. Like, I, I went on this, like, multi-city tour um, I'm, you know, selling tons of books. I'm doing all these, you know, cocktails with Belle. I'm doing other people's, you know, events. Like, I didn't have time to sleep. I was doing, like, a lot of speaking engagements. Other places wanted me to write for them, which, you know, if you work at a magazine, you can't uh, use your byline. You can't write for other places. Um, a lot of lucrative mm. offers, speaking engagements were coming down the pipeline. And, you know, we got a new editor-in-chief. She wasn't there for, you know, the whole building of it. She didn't really get it. All she understood was, like, Dimitri is not in the office anymore. Like, why do we have a relationship editor that's never at her desk? Um, hmm. So that was, that was an issue. Um, I was out of vacation days because I'd used them all up going on book tour um, and trying to do, like, TV segments and stuff. And I did the Today Show, which was huge for a first-time right. author. And I figured I had, like, a very narrow window to capitalize on the success of a bell in Brooklyn. Um, and frankly, it, it came to like, you know, I could, I could leave Essence and I could invest in, in trying to build my own brand or I could stay at Essence, which was the best job ever, but continue to invest in building somebody else's dream, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so like I, I chose to leave, you know, like I was like, I was shaking literally um, when I went into the office to tell, you know, my new editor in chief that I was, that I was going, you know, she was none too pleased. I think she took it personally, which I probably shouldn't say, but you know, it is what it is. Um, mm-hmm. It wasn't personal though. Um, and I was just scared. I was terrified because like, I, you know, both my parents have had their jobs like forever and a day. Like my dad, he retired, worked his last job for nearly 30 years. My mom's had the same job literally since before I was born. I had never mm-hmm. thought about, like, being a brand or being on my own. Like, that was foreign to me, like, being an entrepreneur. Like, 
I wanted benefits. I wanted to check every two weeks, but that wasn't working for what I was thinking about building. Um, So I decided to like leap. I figured Mm. I was qualified. Like I had a decent name. I wrote a book. I I worked for Essence for four years. Like if it all fell apart, I could get another job. Right. And who did you talk to? Like, did you, did you talk to anyone before you made that jump and said, look, Oh, I talked to everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Harriet Cole, to this day, is is one of my mentors. She's also a former Essence editor. And Mm -hmm. before I had before I met Harriet Cole, gosh, I went to an event. Specifically, I went to an event. I think it was for the Root, and Harriet was going to be on a panel. And I specifically went to the event to to meet her because I knew she was a former Essence editor. But I had first been introduced to her. She was. I think she'd written a book, and she was on Oprah. And I was like, oh, this is black woman with these glasses and the spiky hair. Like, you know, she's, she's got some, some flair and some fun. Like, I, I could see myself doing this. Um, mm-hmm. So I went to find her, um, and I, you know, I went up to her at the event, and I waited a really long line. And I was like, hey, you don't know me, but I'm an Essence editor, and here's my dilemma. Like, I've got this book, and I've got this brand, and this is what I'm trying to do. Um, and she was like, here, is my cell phone number. You call me, and we're going to figure this out. So, um I talked to Harriet. I talked to Marsha Cole, who was one of the um, mm-hmm. she was the third Essence editor. Um, is her last name Cole? No, I'm mixing names. What's Marsha's name? She's the third Essence editor. Everyone thinks she's the first, but she's the third. Oh, you guys this is going to drive me crazy. Marsha, I cannot remember her last name right now. This is driving me nuts. I'll figure this out. Um, but I talked to Marsha, who was one of an early Essence editor from, you know, mm-hmm. the, um, the 70s. And I was like, so this is what I'm thinking, and this is what I want to do. And, like, what do you think? And she was like, I think you should do it. And I was like, it sounds crazy. Like, and this is the craziest thing I asked her. I was like, Marsha, when I travel out of the country and they ask, what do you do on the customs form, what do I say? Because I had an idea. Like, this was my life. I was like, so when I travel, what do I write in customs? I don't have a real job. And she was like, you write a bell in Brooklyn. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I was comfortable quitting. (laughs) But, you know, I noticed that you you, you said that you asked folks that were were more seasoned or just as seasoned or that had also traversed the the terrain you were about to cross. Did you talk to any of your peers who were also trying to, who may have been in the same situation as you, like trying to figure out what's next, people in your age group or in your family? Yeah, so my family was like, what you mean you're going to quit your good job with benefits at Essence? Like, yes, my parents, southern parents. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> my parents didn't, didn't get the writing thing. They were like, oh, oh okay, you're going you're gonna to write. Like, this is a phase. You know, you'll, you'll, you know, we'll get through this. Like, okay, you'll figure out something else. Eventually, you'll go to law school. Um, they didn't get it. <laughs> until I got to Essence. And then it was, like, every month the, the magazine would come out and, like, all of their friends, like, oh, I saw Demetri in the Essence. Oh, I saw it about, you know, my parents loved that. Like, the Essence would come and they would buy a million copies and they would, you know, pass them out to people. Like, it was ridiculous. But that's, <laughs> like, when my parents finally got, like, oh, this writing thing has legs. And then the book came out and they were like, oh, okay, maybe Demetri really can write. Like, maybe this is, this is a good thing. Um, mm-hmm. But they, they didn't understand, like, quitting a job with benefits. Um, my friends are, even at the time, largely entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Even at least, like, the, um, the economy had tanked. A lot of my friends had gotten laid off. 
Um, and so they had to figure out something else because no one was paying people to write and, and putting them on math heads anymore. Like I went to a party once and it was like 40 people in the room and 11 of us still had jobs. We were all oh, creative. Wow. Yeah. Um, well, a lot of people had figured something else out. Like one of my really, really good friends, Chloe Hilliard, um, had been an editor at The Source and then an editor at Village Voice. Um, she decided to become a comedian. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you're going to be a comedian. And she was like, yeah, I'm going to do that. And she would, she did it. She started doing it. And she was really successful at it. You know, mm-hmm. like I knew a lot of people who had done sort of unconventional things and were like really, really good. Like my best friend had, had worked at Koch Records and then he was also a DJ and he quit his job to DJ full time. And then he started um, buying audio equipment. He started supplying all like, you know, the clubs and venues and stuff with audio. So you know, he showed up one day with this, like, I won't say the price of the watch, but a very expensive watch on. And right. I was like, sir, like, is this what entrepreneur life is? And he was like, handy. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. Like, you ain't got to work at nine to five, and you can still afford, like, a great life. You can still, you know, every time I called him, he was like, oh, I'm headed here, I'm headed there. And I was like, I, I want to do that, which is mm-hmm. how you get me asking about, what do I put on my passport, my customs form, when I'm, tra- <laughs> I'm flying into or out of a country? Like, yeah. Yeah, okay. She's like, um, she's like, it's going to be okay, Demetria. If this is your biggest concern, we're going to figure that out. She's like, you're going to be fine. If that's, what, if that's your concern, <laughs> it's not, how do I pay my bills? It's like, what do I put on the customs form for my international flight? Yeah, it'll be okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll be all right. So we're in the process of you deciding, okay, I'm going to leave. I'm going to, you know, be self-employed, if you will, full-time now. Where did the reality show come into play? Um, let me see. I left Essence in 2011. Um, I think Bravo called in like 2013, like early 2013. Mm-hmm. There was there was a lot going on at that time. So, a Bell in Brooklyn had been optioned by a major network to be turned into a scripted series, and one of the concerns as we were going back and forth with the network was do enough people know this book? So Mm -hmm. if, if, because I wanted it to be called a bell in Brooklyn, you know, based off the blog of bellinbrooklyn.com, like, you know, we're going back and forth about the language and they were like, well, do enough people really know this book that we're going to have to insist on it being called a bell in Brooklyn? Do enough people know this author? Like, okay, so people who read Essence know her, but outside of that, like, is she really, like, you know, this big name? Because we know, you know, X, and we know Y, and we know Z, but we don't really know Mm -hmm. Demetria Lucas. Um, And the reality show circled around, and, you know, I was like, no, I'm not doing that. Because it wasn't the first one that had come my way. I turned down, like, a bunch of stuff. Um, And, you know, they kept coming back, and they were like, you know, it's not that type of show. It's going to be different. It's about, you know, women working in the city. And they never called it a reality show. They were always like, oh, it's a docu-series. You know, it's very different than what we're trying to do. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the network gets a lot of criticism for the portrayals of, of black women. And, you know, we've seen the stuff that you've written criticizing it. And we want, you know, we want to do something different. We want to negate that. And, you know, it's women who actually have businesses and something to lose. And, you know, can you give it a shot? Can you at least come, you know, meet the other women that we're looking for, looking at for the show? Um, Mm -hmm. And so that's how it came to be. It was like I felt like I needed to raise my profile because of the scripted show that was in the works. And then, you know, they said it was something different and kind of interested in TV, I kind mm-hmm. of thought more CNN, HLN, but, you know, if it was about the actual brand and the business, maybe it's a way to take it to the next level. I don't know. It was mm-hmm. worth a shot. 
So it was always a strategy play for you, not necessarily a, a uh, I just want to be on TV type of thing. Because now, now we see so many different shows, it's just people just wanting to be on TV by any means necessary. But for you, it seems like it was a, a business play and always about a business play. Yeah, like that was probably like the fourth or fifth show that had, or producer, production team that had come to me and my manager at the time to say like, hey, you know, consider Demetria for blah, blah, blah. We'd love to have her. And I was flatly like, no, I'm not doing reality TV. Like, Mm-hmm. I used to have this column, this daily column for SS.com, and once a week I would, like, blast people on reality TV, like, oh, my God, so horrible <laughs> representation. Like, this is terrible, blah, blah, blah. I can't believe she did this. I can't believe she said that. Like, I never thought I would do reality TV. Um, mm-hmm. But it came around, and it sounded like something different, um, and I gave it a shot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How good that turned out depends on your perspective. Right. And, you know, so you did get, like, you found yourself going from the side of being the critiquer to being critiqued. Like, some people, you know, didn't care for your honesty or your directness. Um, How did you take that? Or whenever you may have had an argument or disagreement with someone, how did you take that now that you were on the side of receiving the criticism from so many? Because now with social media, everyone's a critic. So how did you take that? Yeah, it um, it was very tough for me. And what made it difficult was not so much that, you know, people are criticizing, you know, me. It's not the first time it happened. It's the first time on that scale. You know, like the Mm -hmm. first episode of the show got like 2.5 million viewers, right? So a lot of them are on social media and they, you know, have something to say. So it wasn't so much that, but it was like the editing of it because I know the story of what happened and why so-and-so said this and why I said that or, you know, even situations that didn't apply to me. Like, I'm there for the whole thing. The editing version wasn't always true to what Mm -hmm. happened in the scene. So if you're critiquing me for something that, you know, genuinely happened and it's presented the way that it actually played out, like, fair game. But then, like, I'm getting attacked for stuff that I didn't even really do. It's just mm-hmm. like, and then how do you defend against that? Because, you know, trying to explain to people that we tape every scene is a minimum of four to five hours. But what you see on the screen is maybe three minutes. Right. You know, like people don't, unless you work in, in TV or you work in media, people don't grasp that concept. So they're taking an entire day's worth of footage and, you know, breaking it down to what they think is the most interesting part and what what is considered most interesting to me I wouldn't even say mm-hmm. it's most interesting actually I would say it's the most salacious because it's TV what you want is viewers you know you want people right. to, to watch it and you want people to get on social media and talk about it then you want them to go to the website and rewatch it and watch behind the scenes clips like you know you want what's going to get people clicking and that's not always you know intelligent thought or discourse among Black women, you know, it's the conflict. Mm-hmm. That's what drives the story. So. Mm-hmm. At any point, did you ever say, you know what, maybe I shouldn't have done this? Like while you were in the I middle mean, of maybe taping or the season or the process? Oh, I quit like multiple times. <laughs> no, you did not. Was forced to, I absolutely did. And was forced to continue because I was under contract. Like I didn't want to do season two. Like, and I've said that publicly before. Like I, I had to do a lot to get out of that show. Oh, really? Yeah, I wrote an article what? for Huffington Post, like, blasting the head of Bravo because I wanted out. Yeah. Now, 
looking at all of the layers to it, you want it out. You're like, this is not me. This is not what I want to do. Were you worried about how this will affect your brand and other opportunities coming forward, or was it, or was it bigger than that for you? No, I was personally miserable, and I wanted out. Mm-hmm. I think there's a, a, a misconception about me sometimes that I'm very overly calculated, I think, or that everything I do is a business decision. Like, I really mm-hmm. think more about my personal self, like my personal well-being, I think, that people give credit for. Like, I'll mm-hmm. try something new, and if it, you know, doesn't work, um, <laughs> I, I won't say in a bad situation, you know, personally or professionally. So, you know, I tried it and and it wasn't it wasn't what I wanted it to be. It was very mm-hmm. different than what it was presented to be and then you know, I tried to make the best of it and I tried to, you know, compromise and negotiate and then I tried to conjole and refuse and then I finally just had to put my foot down and was like, "No." So, mhm. And I also don't want to say it so much with like people thinking you're overly strategic. I think we all you know, especially those of us who are entrepreneurs or freelancers or creatives in this day and age, I think many of us kind of overthink, if you will, or think there's many different scenarios, like if I do this, like what's the backlash for this? Or, you know, because you don't have anyone else to fall on, back on. You don't have that, that check every two weeks. You know, a lot of people would have moved out of fear, you know what I mean, or wouldn't have moved, I should say, wouldn't have made a move out of fear. So I really commend you on doing doing what you felt was best for you. That's something that I struggle with sometimes. I have to, I'm the last year have made moves that I felt were best for me and that I could sleep with that night. And I knew that I know now, and I can say this very, you know, very honestly, that if I didn't have the conscience that I have, I'd probably be further along or mm-hmm. I'd probably be in a different place. But I had to do what made me personally happy, and that's not always the easy thing to do. And I commend Absolutely. you for doing that. I commend no, you for doing I was- that always like really clear like um you know like there's room for me in my father's house <laughs> like, like, I heard it's difficult. like 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 I'm never not going to be able to you know pay my rent or, or pay my bills like you know if I need assistance um like I'm very blessed to have parents that you know are, are straight you know like if, mm-hmm. if I fall on my ass like my parents are not gonna let me hit the ground you know right Right. Um, and, you know, a lot of people, like, I think I said something on, on the show once or whatever about, like, oh, I have my father's credit card. Well, yeah, I rarely use it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like, I've always, you know, paid my own bills and expenses. And, you know, I've, I've suffered unnecessarily just because I had too much pride to, you know, call and ask for um, what I wanted or needed. You know, you want to feel like you're independent and such. But, um, no, like I, I, I take no shame in, in having a, a, a safety net and, and utilizing it um, when necessary. And it, it allows me to make, make decisions less difficult sometimes mm-hmm. because I'm not doing it because I'm worried about like, oh, how am I going to eat? Like if I, if I turn this, this thing down that I don't really want to do or I know is not the right decision, like, you know, am I going to be able to pay my rent? Like I, I don't have that dilemma. So it does make life significantly easier. Like, I fully acknowledge the privilege of that. And that's a blessing. That, that, that's it is. a blessing. Girl. That's a blessing. Girl. Don't feel bad for that. Don't feel bad. Or that's something you never have I to don't. apologize. Yeah. Like, people, people say stuff like that to me all the time. They're like, well, your dad's a judge. And that's my blessing. I'm, I'm okay with that. <laughs> yeah. 
I was like, that's a blessing. That's a blessing. Yes. I'm okay with it. That's a blessing. Thank God for his, his judgeship. Yes. Yes, I will show up in New Orleans, Louisiana, happily and sit at his house, sure will, and eat all the etouffee and boudin I want. Like you said, exactly. sure will. Exactly, in AC, in a good-sized bed. Like, come on now. Come on. <laughs> With come elastic on. pants on. I look, look, well-fed, yes. <laughs> get into it. And this, so, okay, so I'm going to get back on track here. Um, so I'm like, because I get this, I have so many questions and curiosities. So you film the show, you go through your seasons, and you've also in the process released another book. Since, yes. since your first, when you released another book, you're doing tons of morning shows. I know people have seen you on Good Morning America. You're doing tours. You also got married. You're on the cover magazines. And then recently, I'm fast-forwarding, you announced that you went through a divorce. And I'm not into mm-hmm. the nitty I'm not into the nitty-gritty of the divorce because I felt like the comments really upset me. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to BS you. They really upset me. I felt like the comments came – a lot of the negative comments came from people who ain't never been through nothing in life. Or you're, you having something negative or something more that may appear negative happen to you in your life made them feel better about things going on in their life. And so the comments really upset me. Um, Can the, I tell you, I didn't see any of that, like – Mm-hmm. I only read the comments on my social media, and it's mm-hmm. by far like the the most impactful post I've I've ever written. There was like thirty five hundred comments, like actually like four thousand I think at this point, and ninety nine point nine percent of them were like, "Hey, girl, life happens. It's gonna be okay." Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's what I received from like the vast majority of people. Like I got thousands of emails from women who either been through it or had been in similar situations. Um, my DMs were nuts with women, like, how did you find the strength to leave? Like, what did you do? Like, how did mm-hmm. you, like, like can, can you give us a how-to on, like, you know, how to, how to leave a bad situation? Um, overwhelmingly, that was the response that I, I got. And even, like, now, like, going out in the world, like, I went to buy luggage the other day, and this woman had really beautiful blonde hair, and I was kind of staring at her, and I was like, I'm sorry, your hair is, like, really gorgeous. And she recognized my voice from the show, and she was like, oh, my God, I read your Instagram post. And I was like, oh, my God, really? Like, I'm sending my voice to rat. And then the woman who was standing in front of her was like, oh, my God, I know you. I read that post, too. And they're, like, mm-hmm. giving me encouragement in the line while I'm buying luggage. Like, Good. It's, it's crazy. Or I go to events. Like, I just went to this thing in, in New York the other day, and, like, women will come up to me and, like, grab my hand and whisper in my ear. Like, they'll tell me their own story or they'll give me words of encouragement or they ask if they can pray with me. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, perhaps there was, like, a negative response to it. And, you know, I didn't care. At the time that I posted it, it's just I wanted to be free of the shame of it all, um, mm-hmm. and I've been fine since then. Like, I was miserable until December 21st, and ever since December 22nd, like, I just feel like I'm just, I don't know, in the middle of a gigantic embrace of women, not even just black women, but, like, women all over the country. Like, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, I mean, it's just, I, I yeah, like, that was, the response to that was completely overwhelming. So, if, you know, people found, some people found it negative, then, Mm-hmm. You know, like, God bless them, and if people were encouraged by it or, you know, felt aware about the, you know, the transparency of it, like, I, God bless them, too. 
What I felt was negative is like if I um, Googled like the, the post, just the things that some people were saying on some of the other sites. And um, Nicole Kane and I, she was here on the cost, and she talked about how when she did, went through her rebrand and her transformation, how um, – how some of the, like how the negative articles or comments really affected her, and she's just trying to live her best life. And so she and I had had that conversation, and then prior to you making your announcement, and that's what ran through my head. Like Demetri's just trying to live her best life, and and some of the things that people were saying were really upsetting me. Um, do you feel like because your background was as a relationship relationships expert that you were held to like a higher standard than, say, anybody else's marriage or relationship? That's not something I ever thought about. I got married because I wanted to get married, and when my marriage was falling apart, like, I I tried to save my marriage because I wanted to be married, you know? Like, I, I was mm-hmm. in love with this man. To some degree, I still am. Um, but it wasn't about, like, what will people say? What will people do? Like, after I left, that was something that that I thought about, like, you know, because I would talk to people, and I was like, I've got to say something. Like, people keep asking me, like, why are you always in D.C.? Like, why don't you wear your ring? Where's your ring? Where's your husband? Like, it was just incessant. Um, Hmm. And I was like, Mm -hmm. at some point I have to address it. And, you know, people were like, well, you know, maybe you shouldn't. Maybe you should just go back. I mean, was it so bad? And I'm just like, really? Like, I was, like, you know, kind of suicidal and wanted to die. Like, you're really asking me, was it so bad? Right. Um. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. that wasn't something that played into it. So like, if people held me to a higher standard, I mean, great, that's on you. That's that's not mm-hmm. a burden that I, I am or was willing to carry. Where do you find your strength in being able to block out the other voices and really listening to what feels authentic and genuine to you and what you want? Where do you find that strength? Ain't no strength in it. It's just basic common sense. Like, Demetria, there's strength in that. It feels organic to you, but there's strength in that because a lot of people struggle with that. It doesn't feel strong to me. It Mm -hmm. just feels like when I get caught up, like, emotionally and, you know, like, you know, somebody said this about me. It's usually someone that matters to me. It's Mm -hmm. not strangers that I don't know who have a piece of the story and want to run with it. Like, I mean, I'm I'm far, like, I don't consider myself a celebrity by any means. I don't consider myself famous. Um, but I've been in the public eye in some capacity since, like, 2007, 2008. I did my first reality show. Like, I was an expert on this talk about PEP, like, somewhere around that time. And, you know, I was in Essence, like, every month. Um, so I'm, I've been in it a while. So it's not mm-hmm. like, you know, I was no one, I didn't know anything, no one knew my name. And then the next day, like all this stuff happened, like it's been a gradual build to mm-hmm. sort of deal with, with the public or people saying different things. It's just strangers, you know, just having conversation. And, you know, I, when I started this, there was no real social media. Like, you know, there was Facebook and you still had to have a, a college, I think, account <laughs> to be on Facebook. Um, like <laughs> I remember I, that. Grown, exactly. Like, I've grown with social media. So I wasn't, like, you know, just thrown into the lion's den with it. But it's just, like, a simple acknowledgement. Like, I don't know these people, and these people don't know me. It's no mm-hmm. different for them than, than rooting for, like, your favorite football team. Somebody gave me that analogy really early on in life. And they were like, it's not personal. Like, people just pick their favorite or pick their, you know, their, their enemy, and they just run with it. 
Like, you're always going to mm-hmm. be. Like, in, in D.C., no one's ever going to, like, love Dallas. No one's openly. Right. Very rare. It's ever going to love Dallas. It just is what it is. And it's not that anybody on the Cowboys has done anything specific to anyone in this area. It's just that's the rival. It, it right. is what it is. And so some people are just like, you know, she's the villain. She's the chick I don't like. And it's just that simple. Like, you don't know me. You don't know the ins and outs of who I am. You've decided for whatever reason that you don't like me. And there's nothing that I can do to change your perception. So why try? And that's too much energy because there's too many people out there in the world to try to, to fight and change everyone's perception. Um, yeah, it's like there's nothing I could do. Like, if you've decided yeah. you don't like me, like, there's pretty much nothing I can do. So I do me. And if you like it, that's awesome. And if you don't, still awesome. Right. We're going to all be all right. The sun's going to shine tomorrow. Exactly. <laughs> Things are going to keep going. So all of this is happening in your personal life and at home. And then what's going on in terms of work? Were you working on any new um, projects? Were you working on any new books? How, what was happening? Um, I kind of shut down um, for a lot of – what are we, 2018? 2017, I decided I wasn't going to write for a whole year. I was going to focus on, you know, just doing brand work. Um, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's, it's, it's good money. It's pretty quick. Like, everybody's happy. You know, the sponsors get their numbers. And, you know, I get to go to, like, really great events and see really amazing things. Um, but, like, I'm a writer, and mm-hmm. writing comes from a very personal place. So if you're not in a good space personally – unless you're willing to write about, like, the really crappy things that are happening in your life, like, that's at the forefront. Like, nothing else really creative and productive is coming until you deal with, like, your personal stuff. You can deal with it, you know, personally and private. You can deal with it personally and write about it. But you have to deal with it. Otherwise, you're, like, your creative source is kind of cut off. And Mm. that's kind of where I was. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like, I had – I was doing my brand stuff and, you know, I had money saved up, and I was in a fortunate position where I was, like, I can just have time to figure this out, you know? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I took it. What is something, um, as you look back – well, let me start – let me take a step back. We mentioned before we started recording and, and, and really diving into this interview, success. You've had a really great career thus far, and your future looks extremely bright as well. Do you feel like you've achieved success yet? No. God, no. What does success look like to you now? Success? (laughs) Um, It still looks like, you know, Oprah's mansion at Monticello. Like, I want to sit (laughs) under my big oak. And, you know, interview my favorite people as a pastime and then go into, like, my, I don't know, what, her 30,000? Is that conservative, her 30,000-square-foot mansion? Like, I feel like that's still what mm-hmm. success looks like to me in, mm-hmm. in some degree, which some people would be like, that's crazy. But that's also, like, the motivation that keeps me going. Like, there are mm-hmm. things that I want. There's a certain lifestyle that I, I want to have. There are there are markers, you know, there's, there's uh, awards I want to win. There's, you know, just mm-hmm. sort of different markers that I, that I want to hit. Mm-hmm. A little bit earlier in the conversation you mentioned, like when you started writing, that you weren't necessarily sure what a career as a writer looked like, but you were going for it. Are you sure now, so to speak, what the end game looks like? Are you, are you more clear now on what the next steps are to getting to where you want to go, or are you just moving in faith and just keeping, just keep hustling, keep going? 
Does that make sense? Yeah. No, I have no idea what what the end game looks like. Um, like I I didn't know like five years ago that I didn't know in 2007 that I was gonna you know drop a book in 2011. I was gonna quit my job and you know 2012 I'm gonna be like touring all over the world and people are gonna be paying me like insane mm-hmm. amounts of money for like three days work like my annual salary for three days of work mm-hmm. like that's crazy to me. Um, mm-hmm. or shooting commercials for like brands like that's crazy. Like I'm gonna do what? Um, right. Like I don't I don't know I don't I don't know where it's going. Um. But I'm writing, again, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. not so much journalism, but I'm working on two different books at the same time, which is a really interesting process, but, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel, like, I feel like I have something to say again. I feel like I have a perspective. I feel like ready to speak on, on certain things. So that's right. What can you tell us about your books? So the first one is probably going to be, actually probably the first one to speak this into existence is Art and Avocados um, based off my, I did this like three-week tour through Mexico, like hit like seven cities. I was solo for most of it, um, and I documented Mm -hmm. the whole thing on my Instagram page. And people were like, wait, so you just ran off to Mexico for three weeks like dolo? Like, wait, well, mm-hmm. how, how does that work? Like, what, and people just could not wrap their minds about that. Like, so you're going to travel solo, like, as a woman? And, like, what precautions do you take? And who takes your pictures? And how do you put an itinerary together for, like, all of this stuff? Like, do you have a travel agent? Like, no. I, I figure out all this stuff. I can research extensively, and this is how I do it. Um, but people wanted to know, like, like, walk me through this trip. Like, what's the itinerary? How do you do this? What do you pack? How do you prepare? Like, how do you do all this? So that's what Art and Avocados is. Like, it's – um. It's it's part photo book, um, part like how do you how do you get up and, and do it on your own and how do you make it three weeks in a foreign country where you kind of sort of speak Spanish but not really all that well. Like, <laughs> to get by. So yeah, and so the second like one and quick. And the second one, um, I've been calling this book. I don't know if I want to say the name, but it's probably going to change again. Um, I'll leave the name out. Okay. But it's um it's kind of like a I've been describing it as and no offense to my idol Terry McMillan it's like a 2018 waiting to exhale it's fiction which is which is new for me um mm-hmm. and it's about married women okay I love that so there's right. um one of the issues that I had um you know when I was married was that there wasn't a lot of books about married women, married life, just this addressing married women. Like, everything's all about, like, single women and the single women's life. It, was, it wasn't a lot about, like, married. Um, so there's, um, there's some happy marriages in the book, and then there's some very dramatic marriages. And, you know, I may or mm-hmm. may not have drawn from personal experiences and those of my friends. It's very a Bell in Brooklyn, but the mm-hmm. married version. So, you know, if you like a Bell in Brooklyn, you know, you'll, you'll probably like this one, even though it's fiction, which means I can just go crazy. I'm like, I've never, <laughs> I've never ever make up stuff before. Like before, before it was always like, oh, you have to like, you know, get this accurate because people go and fact check. And, you know, was the mm-hmm. restaurant open when she said it was open? Like people get really into it. But with fiction, like your mind can just run wild. I'm like, wait, I could just make up stuff? Like this is crazy. <laughs> My mind is very active. I love that. So I'm looking for a gym here, um, just something that not only I can take away because I'm being selfish, <laughs> but anybody mm-hmm. listening, um, what's one thing you've learned on your journey thus far that you wish you could go back and tell 22-year-old Demetria? Um, 
So I talk to 22-year-old Demetria on a regular basis, and I know that sounds crazy, but it's what I do. Um, no, tell me more. Tell me more. She, she tells me things because at 22, you know, I was in grad school. I was living in New York. I'm very idealistic about, you know, what the world can be, what I can accomplish, what I can do. Like, it's all big dreams in the world laid out before you. But I was really clear about, like, the kind of life that I wanted to to lead professionally, personally. Like, I knew I wanted to be happy. I knew I wanted to travel. I knew I wanted to write. Like, very basic things. Because at 22, you don't really know much. You know, you haven't seen a whole bunch of world for most people. So you're just really basic about the things that you want. And and I try to stay very true to those ideals um, Mm -hmm. because it's what I just genuinely wanted. Like, I feel like sometimes, you know, you get older and, you know, there's all this stuff that gets in the way. You know, like I happen not right. to have children, but if you have kids and it's like, you know, you want to, you know, quit your job and, you know, open a restaurant or, you know, open a whatever business. But you think about like, oh, well, these kids need benefits and these kids need food and, and, and diapers and, you know, private school and lessons and, and all this other stuff. So it stops you from, from mm-hmm. being, from living the dream that you had. Um, 22-year-old Demetria had like a very clear dream and, and I tried to stay true to her like some of her stuff was crazy. It was like you did what? what <laughs> but but for the the core of it, you know, like I I wanted to be happy, and mm-hmm. um in the times in my life that I found myself not so, like I kind of think to myself, God, I'm getting emotional. I kind of think to myself, if my 22 year old self came to me and she said X Y Z, like what advice would I give her? Mm-hmm. And I would always tell her to be happy, and I would always tell her to either figure it out and fix it or walk away from it because life is too short. Mm. So, yeah. Amen. Amen to that. Um, before I let you go, is there a particular quote or or set of words that you go to sometimes to kind of help bring you back and, and keep you motivated? Um, my grandmother, just keep mm-hmm. living, child. Okay. Sometimes like, it seems so simple, yet it is. <laughs> yeah, but I remember, like, you know, going to my, my grandmother, and, you know, she passed when I was in my um, my mid-20s, and, you know, I would tell her about, like, different things, like, oh, you know, this job or, you know, dating this guy and, and whatever, and, like, things that would just seem so big to me at 20-something. You know, everything is, like, the end of the world, you know? Yes, girl. Like, I would tell her stuff, and she'd be so unfazed. Because, like, life is just, it's ebbs and flows. Like, good comes and, and good goes away, and bad comes, but the bad goes away, too. Like, you just got to mm-hmm. kind of, like, ride ride the wave and just keep living. Like, there's so much that, that has happened to me, good and bad, that, like, I just never expected. And it's like, if you can just keep going, like, it all figures itself out somehow. On to the next. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for taking the time, for sharing so much of your time and your story with us. Um, as I'm on my journey, I know I took down some tidbits to take for my own personal use. I'm being selfish in this moment. All of you out there listening, please follow Demetria on social media at Demetria L. Lucas, L-U-C-A-S. Email us your thoughts, questions, and com- comments at info at justanablair.com. And please, of course, share us amongst your social circles. Click subscribe and continue to chase your dreams and pursue your passions. We'll catch you next time. Well, that wraps another great episode. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast and, of course, share with your tribe, even the people that you don't like. And don't forget to follow me at Justina Blair, where you can let me know how you're making the cost pay off for you.